Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor-guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash internet for details. comparisons and to where we are at this moment yes I mean I played I played it in an era where racism in the game was all over the game when somebody like Raheem speaks which is which is great and I said it's been very positive you know it's going to get more mileage far more mileage than, than anything um, anything perhaps you know preceding this I didn't realize how big a club it was you know a fanatical fan base an unbelievable stadium that you will probably ne- never see the likes of again this is a stadium bang in the middle of the city center you know you will almost never see that again unfortunately for Hatimi broke his leg in the period of time when I was there. And it was almost just at that time where we were just starting to see that change in him. If I looked at the situation of, of my departure there, I think the club panicked. I think we, we had some tough games in that period of time, even though we were five points above the relegation zone. And I think um, the, the, the club panicked at that time. I haven't said too much because I've always preferred not to and I've always preferred to move on as I've already um, said to you but what I have told people and what I have said is that I never saw it coming Hello listeners and welcome back to yet again another episode of the Beautiful Game podcast as ever I'm your host Budge joined by my faithful two co-conspirators Dot and Dej gents how are we doing this uh, uh, very evening? I'm, I'm very well, Budge. We've got a pillar in our community on the platform, so I can't wait to get this started. 100%. And how about you, Dej? Yeah, I'm doing very, very well. You know, I've been getting to know Chris. You know, he's a top man. You know, we get on very, very well, and it's a pleasure to have him on our platform. It's a pleasure that he's decided to, you know, help us out by coming onto our platform, because we need these big names to come and help us, you know, grow what we're doing and you know, we appreciate it a lot. Absolutely. Um, so, of course, as, as the boys have alluded to, we are joined uh, by a very, very special guest 
who uh, most recently managed uh, Brighton in the Premier League, who we uh, led to promotion in uh, the 2016-17 season. Um, but he's also been the head honcho at Newcastle, where he did the same thing, gaining promotion in 2009-10. Um, he's also been at Spurs, Birmingham and Norwich. He's a gentleman who places huge emphasis on attention to detail and discipline. A man of great diction, poise and temperament. I don't imagine he's, um, he's done any tests on his ancestry uh, recently, but I wouldn't be too surprised if we ended up finding out that he was a long-lost uh, brother of Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we welcome... Chris Hewton to the platform. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, 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 welcome. welcome. Well, well it, it sounds like the introduction. I can leave now. <laughs> sure. See you later, Chris. <laughs> I can follow that, but, um, but there you go. No, you're, you're very welcome, and it's, uh, and it's uh, great to see the, the three of you and, um, and to be on the show. Very much so. Thank you, Chris. Um, Chris, just to kick things off, um, take us back to the very beginning I know you're, you know, from East London, that Blackwall Tunnel, you cross it and then you're in South, you go to the other end, it's traffic and then you're in East. Just tell us about your upbringing. Let's just start it there. Yeah, well, I think as regards most, most kids of my, of my era, then it was about playing in the streets. And um, I was brought up in, in uh, East London with a Ghanaian father, an Irish um, mother in a very multicultural uh, area um, and certainly as regards that Blackwall Tunnel then most of the traffic at the time was on the on the south side so, <laughs> yeah. we always felt quite comfortable on that uh, on that east side but it was a very and still is a very multicultural area and you know that's been the basis really of my my upbringing and as regards football, I was fortunate that uh, I had a brother or I have a brother who was a year younger than me that, that, that also played football. So we looked for every single opportunity that we could to play football. And of course, that, that was the era when you could um, play out in the streets and wait till it's dark and then go back for your, for your dinner and, and then try and sneak out again. Yeah, so what actually got you hooked on the game, you know, from... A young age. who are your you know heroes growing up um i must have been i probably um because also as regards supporting a team and as a, a young um young kid i never really um supported a team I, I loved football i think probably what might have been the difference is, is that um on a lot of young lads that support a team it comes from family, you know, that's who their family support or who the dad support. At the time, my, my father had no interest in football. He, he, he worked. So it was always just about, about playing. And of course, going back to the early years, you know, you remember my age, it was, it was very much, you know, George Best and your Bobby Charlton. And, and of course, at a proper young age, it was, you know, I still, I still remember 1966 World Cup. But I think as, as regards, you know, individuals and teams, um, I didn't really have any. My real desire was just, just to play out as, as much as I could. And, and I suppose in them days, we never thought of what we were doing as practice. You know, we, we just thought of it as fun. The more football we play, the less we have to spend indoors. 
the more football we played, the less time we had to spend doing some homework. And it was just, um, it was fun. And of course, during that period of time, what you realise, of course, in later time, is that what you're developing are skills. Absolutely. And, you know, just, just then, Chris, you mentioned a few players that you admired uh, growing up and, and, and who you looked up to. Uh, and in your career, you were, you, you, you were a left-back. And you didn't mention any uh, sort of defensive players there. So I, I, I just wanted to get a bit of a steer on how you then uh, arrived at, at, at your playing position. Were you always a defensive player? Um, how, how, did, how did that all work out? No, well, well mine was, you know, in, in lots of stories, in lots of stories that you will hear in, in our game, you know, it can, it can be about moments, uh, luck, decision by, by somebody. Um, I, as, a, as a young one, I played for the district, played with the district of Newham. I went to school, obviously, in the, the Forest Gate, Upton Park here. Area um, and for, uh, although a right-footed player, I was played on the left, left wing. So what had happened was, is that when I got discovered by Tottenham, by that stage, I was still playing on the left, left side, but more a sort of left side midfield player. And um, what happened was, is that we had um, a youth team coach at the time, um, Peter Shreves, who. Who, uh, who liked me as a player. And one particular game, we, we were due to play in a semi-final and the left-back got injured. Uh, I don't have played in that game. I think I would have been sub in that game. He decided to play me at left-back. Um, and from that game, from that one game, then that was it. I played as a left-back more or less, apart from, of course, periods I, I played at right back as well. But apart from that, I more or less played every other game at, at left back. And that was one decision, left back being injured, put me into that position. Uh, and, and of course, having done well enough to, to maintain that. Yeah, so for those of us that don't know, because obviously we're a younger generation, so how would you explain to all was like the type of player you were you know in your pomp were you like a Andy Robertson type fullback were you more defensive how would you define yourself um, I would define myself as as an offensive an offensive fullback and you know probably you know there might have been them players if I, if I look at Tottenham there was a, a left back in in John Gorman who played mm. a number of games before me um, who was a similar type player right footed left back uh, but an attacking fullback, semi sort of attacking. Before that, was a wonderful player called Seal Knowles. Wonderful player, wonderful left foot, and so. But but wouldn't have been as attacking one. So probably my era or the way that I played was the real sort of initial change. You know, generally, generally fullbacks were defenders. You know, good purveyors of the ball, good service into the front. Link up, support the midfield players, uh, and so probably you know I would have been one of the more one of the first more natural attacking fullbacks, where probably more more people would have known and would have known my game for the attacking parts. Essentially, I could defend because I had, because I had good pace, but more would have would have recognised my game from the attacking part of the game and and able to assist some goals and, and for a fullback, uh, even able to score a few goals. Not as many as I missed, but um, <laughs> a few goals. 
So Chris, um, we spoke to Andy Cole um, earlier on in the week and, you know, we described, you know, what's going on in the world today as a global pandemic. And we wasn't speaking about coronavirus, we were speaking about racism within society. So as a, you know, black man, when you were coming through, did you suffer any sort of racial slurs and did you have to work three times harder to get an opportunity? Um, well, certainly as regards what's happening at the moment, and, and, I, and I don't think there's, there's any, um, of any nationality that it, that it hasn't affected. Um, but for my own journey and comparisons and to where we are at this moment, yes, I mean, I played, I played it in an era where racism in the game was all over the game. You know, you you played in uh, away stadiums uh, in particular, and you knew some stadiums more than others that you was going to get um, racial abuse. Um, we suffered racism on the football pitch, um, personally, and also we uh, could see others um, giving racial or giving out racial abuse. So it was something. It was something that that was part of the game the exact same way as it was part of society so I grew up in that yeah. and there are ways to deal with it some can deal with it better than others what what didn't change was the the fact that it existed and you had to maneuver your life around that you was always in situations where you knew that potentially there could be something said um, you had to tread a little bit more carefully and as I said try and manoeuvre your way around that and, uh, and some some found that harder than others and you know the, the, the game will be full of, of stories in the community where uh, you know there were them young players young black players that found it hard to manoeuvre around that one and suffered from it and you know and any progress they might have made in football was always going to be very difficult. Chris, in, in, in 1979, you became the first black player to represent the Republic of Ireland. And of course, you, you, you went on to make 53 appearances for, 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 for the country as well. And we recently have seen um, Raheem Sterling come out and criticise the media for its portrayal of uh, black <coughs> versus uh, white players. Now, I, I can't imagine it would be easy for you to sort of cast your mind back to around about that time when you were making your debut for Ireland. But if, if you can remember, what was, what, was, what was the media's response to, 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 to that uh, back then? Um, you know, we, we obviously uh, are speaking about, you know, uh, 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 then and now and, 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 and the fact that there's, there's been very little change over the years, um, and, and we're, we're sort of still seeing the same issues uh, rear their ugly heads now uh, as ever. Um, and, and was that also prevalent in the media back then as well? Well, what, what, what you have to remember now is, is that, um, you know, the, the media now, you know, as I, this, this um, programme, you know, what I'm doing with Use Lads uh, tonight, it, it's, you know, the, the, the media then was nowhere near what it is today. So, I mean, I remember the first thing 
certainly what I can say is that, that, that it was something that, um, that I was very proud of, you know, to be the first black player to play for Ireland. And of course, um, in the years that have preceded that, it's, you know, there have been many more that, that have played. So at, at, the, at the time, it was, you know, it was a bigger deal in Ireland, but I, but I would have to say, you know, all positive. You know, all positive, and and I think probably, you know, a little bit, a little bit perhaps more because at the time I broke into the Spurs team, were, were was doing very well, even if I if I say so myself, uh, and there was talks about you know possibly representing um, uh, England or getting that chance to represent England, so I think that um, the, the the Irish public, the Irish papers, saw it very much that. Listen, this is somebody that wants to that wants to play for us. You know, could wait for an opportunity for England that wants to play. So that was everything that um, the, that was positive then. But of course, you know, these days are different, and the the, the, the level now of media and the, the amount of media and the amount of coverage is going to pick up everything. And you know, for something, and I, and I do think that that Raheem Sterling has. Has, um, has said so many good things and so many measured things, you know, over this period of time. But of course, when somebody like uh, Raheem speaks, which is which is great, and I said he's been very positive, you know, it's going to get more mileage, far more mileage than than anything, um, anything perhaps you know preceding this. Yeah, so Chris, when we look at the media now and we see the outcry of emotion, we're seeing brands come out of movements. Sky have said they're going to back a scheme which, you know, funds, you know, equal representation in the media. Do you have a glimmer of hope that change is on the horizon? Yeah, I know, I, I, I do. Um, but, um, you know, something, you know, for something that, that has been so bad, you know, over the the, the last um, last couple of weeks, then what you have to look at, you have to look at the reaction. And um, I would have to say that there, there there has a wonderful reaction, very multicultural reaction as regards the the responses. Uh, but it's all about change. And, and I would be, you know, at some stage, what will happen is is that if I'm looking at the level at where we are now the level of emotion of where we are now is that, you know, that will die down. It will, it's, it's normal. It's, it's, it's natural. So for somebody, you know, of my experience and my age, you know, we have been there before. I would have to say, certainly not in this country, not at the level that I think it is, it is now you know, how long it's lasted, but we have been there before, but it all has to end up in, in one category and that is change. And the only way, the only way you can, you can see change is if there is a real enthusiasm to change, if there's a real enthusiasm for it to change. And uh, I think we can only hope that um, with every we think to be going through at the moment that happens but some of the reaction i think has been very good and been very positive from from a lot of different angles so so chris how do we keep this you know at the forefront of people's minds because i saw a graphic today online i think it was via the guardian 
and it was some damning statistics when it came to the black representatives at boardroom level in this country. The FA, zero out of 11. UK athletics, one out of nine. English golf, zero out of 12. Rugby football union, zero out of 14. So what needs to happen for us to see change? Um, well, well, probably, you know, the, the first thing is, you know, and looking at, you know, the three of you there and looking at your age, you know, one that I think that has enthused, you know, everybody of, of, of my age has been the reaction. Um, the marches itself, you know, so many young individuals of different colours, nationalities and so so it's it's about it's it's always going to be about applying pressure. Um, I also have no doubt that that for what we are seeing at at the moment, that organisations, whether it be you know football club businesses, uh, industry, I think as we go into the future, I think we'll be under more pressure. They'll be under more pressure, and they'll be under more scrutiny to to make sure that, that the, the upper levels, the upper levels of their organizations are, are, you know, an appropriate or true reflection of the workforce. And the only way that can happen is, is by, you know, continual pressure. And of course, for what we're seeing at the moment and the reaction that we are seeing, there is a wonderful reaction from a lot of people that are in, you know, powerful, positions now you know what has to change is is that you know decisions on talking on what we would like in that enthusiasm to making things change and i you know i can't see that happening overnight i think there there will be a reaction i don't see it happening over tonight but uh, but i see enough people incensed at the moment and i see enough um, graphs uh, stats you know, of underrepresentation, or so that I think it will, it will, and should, you know, affect those that that makes the decisions. And um, you know, this is something we can talk about now. Um, but again, it's back to a real desire to want to change for whatever reason, whether it's an actual desire because morally you think that should happen, or even if you think it's under the present circumstances, it's something that has to happen. Then you know that that's where the changes will come. Yeah, when you stats, I mean, Raheem Sterling said in a statement as well, when you look at the likes of Saul Campbell, he's been given jobs, you know, to call it jobs, Macclesfield, where he was fighting fires, Southend, where I've actually gone to watch one of his teams play, and it's at clubs where they're struggling to pay the bills. You know, it's not befitting of his prestige as a man and as a manager. And when you look at the likes of Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard, they're being, you know, shoehorned into these luxurious roles. What do you think needs to be done as a leading black manager to bridge that gap and for, you know, black coaches, black managers to be given a fair crack at the whip? Well, I think certainly it's, you know, it's about having more role models. And of course, you can't have more role models unless them persons are, are in positions. They're in positions, and and when we talk about positions, we've got to talk about you know visual positions. Mm. You know, we if I look at the the English game, and if we talk about 
the, the Premier League in particular. The Premier League is shown in probably, probably a new country. You know, every month or every you know week of the year, there's a new country taking on the brand and watching Premier League football. So you know, visually, it's it's about black and ethnic um, coaches, managers in visual positions. Um, but it's something that we've been pushing for and uh, arguing about for for so long now. And I think what we have had is that we and remember, you know, in all of these conversations I have with you, you know, I go back a long way. And, you know, going back in, certainly in uh, as a player, and the presumption, the stigma, or whatever you want to call it, that, that you know, black players were good players, but, you know, they weren't managerial or captain material. And I, and I think that that existed for some time. I think we lost during that period. I think some wonderful potential managers and coaches that uh, didn't see a pathway through to, to management and chose to go in a, in a different direction. But I think the perceptions, the perceptions have to change. And I think probably over the years, the perceptions haven't changed enough. And if, and if the, the perceptions don't change enough as, as, as with anything in life, you as much as possible have to try and change them perceptions. So whether that's through, whether that's through what they see, or whether that's through what we're seeing at the moment, you know, a demand, uh, a pressurising of what the, the actual stats are. Um, a, you know, what, what we have experienced, same as what we've experienced in the country, what we have experienced in football, we have experienced over the years racism in football and if and if our stakeholders believe that and understand that then what has to happen is they have to redress the balance and there has to be a real enthusiasm to want to do that in some aspects i've seen that i've seen that with what the fa have done with with um, the bame coaches associated with each of the, the individual national teams and, um, and I think that is a plus. Uh, and, and I would think, I would very much think that they are, um, at this moment, very much with what's going on, seeing how, th how they can improve things uh, even more. But changing perceptions. And if you can't change perceptions, you have to do it by pressure. East in the Athletic from uh, Carl Lanker, and it was very eloquently written. He said... They want our bodies, but they don't want our minds in football. Would you agree with that statement? Well, I, I don't think it's... I, I, I know exactly what he's saying, but I think it's, I think it's um, more or less what I said, which is, which is very much how, the, how, they saw, how they saw black players. You know, and it's about changing that perception. So how can you change that perception? You can only change that by perception by there being more people in, in visible positions of black and ethnic origins. That's, or that's all it can be, changing, changing them positions. There are so many good um, young BMA um, black and ethnic coaches, managers, um, you know, look in the system now at, at um, academy level. Certainly that's one area that, um, that I think we have seen an improvement over the years, probably at grassroots level and, and academy level. 
but it's about that step up from from that level to the visible levels which are senior football and of course first team um, management but it is it's getting rid of that perception that um that that black uh, and it doesn't have to be remember we're talking about players ex players um it doesn't have to be black ex players being good coaches it's, it's um black and ethnic men women being good coaches yeah. absolutely now chris taking it back to your career I wanted to ask how you found that transition from player into management. Was it something that was always on your mind? Did you always feel that at some stage, you know, once you'd hung up the boots that you would like to go into to management? And, and obviously we're, we're talking now about the fact that there are so few um, uh, uh, black and ethnic minority managers in, uh, uh, in the game now. You can only imagine how, you know, back, back at, you know, when, when you were making that transition, you, you, you can't have seen many people around. And so what kind of encouraged you to, to continue to pursue uh, that route? Yeah, well, well my, my, my pathway was a bit different. And, and you are right, Keith Alexander was probably one who was uh, um, sadly, passed, yeah. sadly passed away. But Keith was a, a wonderful um, uh, friend, um, somebody that I can find it to, and, and a wonderful coach and worked very well um, thought of but my pathway was different you know I, I when I finished playing I finished playing um, at, at Brentford I left Tottenham 1990 had a year and a half at West Ham then I went to Brentford um, both both of them periods of my footballing career I thoroughly enjoyed um, but when I finished playing Aussie Ardilas who I, I'd known very well for my time at Tottenham got the Spurs job and uh, wanted to take me in as his um, reserve team coach or under 21 coach at the time. And, um, you know, that generally that's how it worked. How it worked was that if you are, you know, you get a manager's job, generally, of course, it's got to be somebody that you are very confident is a good coach, but it's certainly somebody you can relate to, somebody that you are friendly with, somebody you can trust. So I was very fortunate that Aussie took me in at that time as as um, uh, under twenty one coach, and in that first uh, first year, so something that I can tell you, and for any young aspiring coaches there, um, it's not always easy. And I must admit, I I went from I went from from playing to going into coaching, and that first year, um, I was really fortunate. We had a, a coach. Uh, a player who played for West Ham called Pat Holland. And um, he was a really good coach. And he took me under his wing that first year. And the two of us sort of worked with the reserves. But he could see things that, that I never saw so naturally. So so for anybody who thinks that, you know, just because you had a, a, a full playing career that you can naturally just go into coaching, um, it doesn't work that way. For some, it's more natural than others. Um, but my pathway was different, as I said, and uh, and I spent, I then went on and spent 14 and a half years at Tottenham, um, working under seven different managers, and for the large majority of that time, working with the first team. And probably my, um, my ambitions um, for a big part of that wasn't to become a manager. It was about doing the best job that I could. I was fortunate that that I was at a club that as each manager went, the owners of the club 
wanted me to stay on and they felt that you know I could assist um, the new manager and, and I would be a plus for the new manager so I think when you've got that type of responsibility you know or also that 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 um, real desire to want to manage sometimes isn't there but certainly in my the latter part of my time there the desire was 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 very much there of course then I went to Newcastle as a coach under um, Kevin Keegan, who I, I thoroughly enjoyed working under and, and everything. How was he like? Because you get this sort of, you see, you know, people come out and talk about his famous line, you know, that he said in the media. How was he like to work with? Um, brilliant. And, and, you know, everything. Um, and remember, Kevin, Kevin's older than me, but he's, you know, he's my era, sort of. Um, even though he's older than me, but the impression that I got from from Kevin was a, everything you everything you saw about him was, and, and of course as you saw in that famous clip, was enthusiasm, passion and enthusiasm. He had this wonderful way of being close to the players, being able to have a laugh and a, and a, and a joke with them, very funny. You know, enjoy training, like training to be you know serious, but you know fun. Um, but he had this way of switching. So when he came to the serious parts, you know, half time, at the end of the game, post game, really good. Also, really good the next day. Bad result. Are you going to be depressed the next day and show show the players that? No, Kevin would always come in with a, a spring in his step. So you know that was um, having worked with so many managers at Tottenham. It was really pleasing for me to for somebody that, that I knew was a top manager to work under for that period of time and a lot and a lot I learned a lot from from Kevin um, but yeah exactly how you saw him that's how he was enthusiasm and passion so Chris I just want to go back to that you know transition from player to coach because we have you know a lot of aspiring young coaches um from all over Europe, listening to this podcast. So what key soft skills would you say are needed to make it in this industry as a coach? Well, pr- probably two things. As, as, a, as a young coach, um, certainly it's, it's about being yourself because what you can do is that you, know, you can watch so many sessions, you, you, know, you can go on the internet and watch coaching sessions from, you know, six o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night. Um, it's about getting out on the grass. And because until, if I look at my experiences, you know, I learned more in that first year than, you know, working with somebody than I thought I, I ever would. And that's because it's that transition from playing, if you was a player, but if you were a coach, actually getting out on the grass and taking sessions. Because that, that's where, that's where you learn more. That's where you get a little bit more comfortable. Because you know, even that first time, first time, remember you, remember to it. You've played or so, or you're an aspiring coach, and then you've got to do a team talk before the game, half time, and at some stage you would you would have never done that before. So it's about getting out on the grass and coaching at whatever level. Because that's that's where you get the real feel. That's where you start 
particularly these days, start to see some, some patterns, some qualities. Can I, can I improve players? But most importantly, you get used to working with a group of individuals. You can do all the, the work you can in, in the classroom uh, and, and badges, but, but nothing take the place of, of actually working with a, a group on the training pitch and the feel, the feel of improving players, the feel of doing a session. So whether that's even with a group of under eights, whether it's under 15s, under, under six, but doing a session and finishing that session and having that real good feel, that real good feel that um, I enjoyed that or that or that went well, or that feel of that didn't go so well. You know, there's certain things that, that could have got that could have gone better, and I'm going to need to improve. So, two things: personality, coach within your personality. You know, don't try and be something that uh, that, that that you're not, um, but spend as much time on the training pitch, coaching, whether it's young kids or or older kids, as as you can. Yeah. So, Chris, obviously, you really came to prominence at your time at Newcastle. I remember the season. Joe Kinnear was there, then obviously he left. You came to be caretaker manager. Alan Shearer came in, then you came to be caretaker manager. Then obviously you were given a job when the club moved the championship. And how difficult was that to oversee the job of, you know, getting rid of the likes of Mark Viduka, Michael Owen, and, you know, a club that's in disarray. And when you speak to players that have played for Newcastle, we've had Danny Simpson, John Joe Shelby on this platform. And they've spoken about the grand stature of the club. I don't think people actually realise unless you go to the city. And you were the man that were given the task of getting the club back to the Premier League. So if you could just talk us through, you know, the scale of the task that you had to oversee. Um, uh, well, firstly, as, as regards to the scale of the club, um, you are right. And probably, probably before I went up there, you know, I'd, I'd been up there as a, as a player and so but um, um, probably uh, I, I didn't realise how big a club it was you know a fanatical fan base a, a, an unbelievable stadium that you will probably ne never see the likes of again this is a stadium you know bang in the middle of the city centre you know you will almost never see that again you know all the, the modern grounds are generally built on the same stadium or in, in the outskirts um, so yes massive club I think what what certainly helped me and you know if I go back to experience and you know as first coaching to where I was at that time and I think it certainly would have been a lot harder for me if I hadn't gone through the experiences that, that I had and what I had the experiences I had as a, as a coach was that I'd had some sort of 16 years experience as a coach working with managers and in particular probably my last three years at Tottenham where I worked with Martin Yole. Other managers that I worked with were generally two or three of us, you know, an assistant. I was first team coach, but it was just me and Martin. So I worked very close with him. So that was a wonderful period for me. And I learned a lot in that period. And I always think, whenever anybody asks me, you know, I, I always say that, you know, that was my apprenticeship. You know, for others, it's a lot shorter. But I had a long apprenticeship that, um, that, that stood me in good stead for what I was about to go into because there was, and as you alluded to, it was a club where the, the owner was trying to sell. 
there was a, a group of players that um, that looked at the, the, the fact that we'd the club had gone down to the championship that really wanted to be playing at Premier League. So there, there was the big this we, we we were probably we were probably a better um, team and a better shape, you know, once the decisions were made on who wanted to go and who wanted to stay. Once once that was determined, the ones that wanted to stay and fight to get this club back up into to the Premier League, then things were you know, things were more comfortable. And one thing I did know, I knew we had a very good team. I knew we would be favourites. So probably the two, the, probably the two biggest things were a manager, a new manager going into that one, was making sure that the group of lads that wanted to stay had enough desire for the fight. I was fortunate we had some very good individuals, strong, strong individuals, um, and the media, because, of course, that was one thing that I hadn't had to deal with. The managers of previous clubs had always done the press conference that dealt with the media. And Newcastle is not an easy club. There was always something going on. So that was probably something that I had to, to learn. And, and it was a very fast learning curve at a club like Newcastle. Yeah, I think that summer as well, um, so Bobby Robson sadly passed as well. So there was a lot going on. And obviously Newcastle right now, they're in the midst of another takeover bid. Apparently this one's close with the Saudi owners. How is it like dealing with Mike Ashley? Because you, you see him a lot. You don't hear about him. So how were you treated by the club, by him and, you know, Derek Lambias? Uh, well, I think there's just two, the, there are probably two, three sides to this one. So, so firstly, generally, you know, I, I'm very happy to to speak about that. I really haven't spoken too much about you know my departure at the club because of you know when whenever that has happened my mindset has always been about positivity and moving on. Um, but to, to to answer your your question as regards to dealings um, with my most of my dealings wasn't wasn't with the owner. And, and re, you remember, in my period of time there, we uh, won the the championship, and and of course, you know when you know the, it, our sayings in football very much about when things are going well and things are not. When things are going well, you can ride most things. You know, you have so many good weeks. Monday mornings are great mornings. And when things are going badly, then then it's different. So pr- probably what happened was because most of my time there as a manager, even in the Premier League, um, was was either good or decent. Um, you know, I never had so many meetings with uh, with um, the, the owners. Um, so most of my most of my uh, meetings would have been very much with you know, Derek Lambias or with um, the club secretary at, at the time. But going back to that one again, most of that time there, you know, we were doing quite well. So most weeks were, were good weeks. As regards my uh, departure, I think the general feeling at the time, and of course it's something that much were expressed by my, myself, um, that it was um, something I didn't expect and most people didn't expect and most people felt it was wrong. So I wouldn't deviate from that. 
uh, was I was very very surprised um, to go, very disappointed to go. I felt I'd done well enough um, to not deserve that. But um, as soon as that happens, and most of my comments afterwards were very much about moving on. You know, I had a wonderful. Didn't you sense it coming though? Because you know, I remember you beat Sunderland five-one in the derby, and there was talk about a new contract that wasn't forthcoming. Because I remember Colin Calderwood coming out after the decision was made and he said, you know what, we had a feeling something was a bit amiss. Would you go along with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are aspects of it. I mean, but I, you know, it, it would be, you know, wrong of me or foolish of me to say that, um, you know, I, I absolutely had no idea. I had a contract that was, uh, that was, uh, was up at, at the end of the season and I hadn't signed a new contract. So... Um, so did I expect it at the time? No, I didn't. We were we we dropped down. I think from tenth in the division, we'd lost at Bush Brom and dropped down to eleventh place. So did I expect it at the time? Um, uh, no, um, but I, as I said, I hadn't signed a, a new contract. And of course, if you haven't signed a new contract, then there's always going to be that that insecurity. So um, so I, I can't sit here and say that you know it was a, a mega surprise but uh, the timing was a surprise yes Chris, uh, I was going to move to your time you know at Birmingham because I know you're very fond of of your time there obviously you worked with you know some honest pros like Jack Butlin and Kurt Davis but I just want to you know keep this as raw as possible because I feel that for some sort of reason you're just seen as like a manager that's a safe pair of hands or a manager that's you know going to do a good job in the interim but people don't have the perception of you of being this great tactician or you know attacking manager I just feel that there's some sort of barrier that people have you know tarred you with and I, I, I just want to get your thoughts on how do you feel you're perceived in the wider audience of the media yeah I, I understand um, um exactly what you're saying I think I think probably you know some of that some of, of, of what you say is because you know that I've been devoid of that that job I suppose that's that what you would regard you know um, job that's going to going to allow me to um, particularly at Premier League level to um, aspire to different things in the Premier League you know, being able to, to manage a club that realistically, realistically that can finish in in the positions, you know, certainly above mid-table and, and pushing for, you know, Europa Cup and, and Champions League. So I'm, I understand, I understand what you say. You know, what, I, what my reference always to is, 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 you know, we've spoke about, you know, stats and, and people in jobs and so on. And I'd like to think that, that wherever I've been, that I've done the job that I that I've been been asked to do. The the reason why there there could be uh, um, or people could perceive me as that uh, I I can't answer that one. You know my my personality is what it is. I'd like to think that um, certainly at, at Birmingham, which was my second role, that we done uh, a good enough job there. And and generally, when I'm talking about I, I'm talking about we because. You know, I have a, I have a, a group of coaches, or a coach, or, or, or a couple of coaches that have come with me and have, and have worked every bit as hard as, as I have to get any success and that I've had. 
but you know they're they're the sort of they're the sort of answers that that I can't give you. It's only other people can. You know, I'm somebody that's worked as as hard as I can in the roles that that I'm in. I'd like to think that I've had success in the roles that I'm in, and and you know if people's perceptions of me are, are different to what the facts are, then you know it's difficult for me to do anything about that. Chris, do you almost feel that, you know, when you look at the boardroom, you look upstairs, there's no one that understands your background. There's no one that looks like you. So when stuff starts declining in terms of results, performances, they're like, look, we have to pull the trigger. We don't have trust in it. Um, I, I can tell you um, quite uh, honestly, the, the no, I, I don't feel that. And, and I've never felt that. And cert- certainly if you, you know, if you ask me, and if we're, we're talking about managers, if, if, it's, if it might be regarding somebody else that, so that I, I have an opinion on, then, then possibly then I could give you that opinion. But I must admit, I, I haven't felt that. You know, I've, I've been employed in, in four different clubs. Um, as I've said to you, that I'd like to think my record in them clubs has been, has been good. Um, but I think you know over and above that it's you know I can't honestly say that others might others might and others might feel that one that way and others might voice that way as as you have done um, but I can't honestly say that um, that I've felt that Chris you know when you were talking about um, the the team that you 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 were, you were managing in um, in Newcastle it was a, it was a talented bunch and of course, you um, uh, also oversaw some very shrewd signings um, that, that, that helped, um, you know, the, the, the team performances and, and what have you. And I wanted to drill down to uh, one player in particular, which is uh, a certain Hatem Benafa. What I wanted to ask first and foremost is, where does he rank among the, 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 the players that you've uh, managed and coached in terms of ability? And, and, and also, you know, he is, he is uh, a, a player that has received a lot of criticism in the media. Um, and, and a lot of people have felt that he, he's reached the heights in his career that he could have because of a lack of discipline. And, and whether you feel that those, um, those, those critics are, are fair in their assessment. Well, but the, my, certainly my, my, my first assessment, which is what you alluded to, is talent. And uh, the, he is—he is one of the most naturally talented players that um, certainly that I've signed, um, but that but that, but that what I've worked with. Um, one of the shames that, that we had in my period of time there was that that he, he uh, when when we was when we looked like we were just to have that breakthrough with him because there's always going to be that balance. There's always going to be that balance between um, talent, natural talent, and discipline. And when I mean discipline, I don't mean discipline turning up late for, for, for training. I mean the disciplines of the game, you know, on your resp- roles and responsibility on, on the football pitch. And with Ben Arthur, I think it was always trying of course, you know he was there for a period of time with me, but he was there for a longer period of time with the um, with the, the next managers. 
or an ex-manager. So I think he had to deal with more than what I had to deal with. Unfortunately, for, 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 for Hatim, he broke his leg in the period of time when I was there. And it was almost just at that time where we were just starting to see that change in him. That, you know, that, that natural ability that he showed on the training pitch, what he could do in the games, to, to him being a consistent member of the team that, that, that others could rely on. And that's, you know, that's the, the art of coaching and management, you know, trying to fit that type of individual in. And there's no doubts that, you, that when you have that type of individual, you know, you know that, you know, his abilities, unless you're talking about the top players, his abilities are going to, you know, outweigh perhaps the other side of his game. And as a manager, it's about, making them con- you know, the, the, um, areas where he doesn't do so well uh, for trying to get that right balance in the team so others can compensate for, for, what he, for what he hasn't got. But if you ask me if he, if he achieved what he was capable of achieving, I think the obvious answer is no, because I think we saw somebody that had real top-class top class ability has he had a career and a good career at the game yes he has you know was he you know capable of of reaching you know bigger heights than than yes he was yeah and and you know what chris um typically in most professions right when you have someone who is leaving a role and coming into a role there is a handover process and a question that i've always wanted to ask is does that apply also in the in 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 the world of management? So, when, you know, if you're you're leaving a, a club or you're sacked, and then there's another manager coming in, is there a, is there a, a handover process of sorts? And the reason I ask is because we recently spoke to Brendan Rogers, and um, he mentioned that you know when he was sort of leaving Liverpool, he invited Klopp over to his house, and they had you know very uh, a very open and honest conversation. And I, I just wondered if that was a one-off or if that was actually something that uh, was quite um, uh, regular in, in, in management in that, you know, there, there is a, a, a kind of a, a process like that. No, I think it, it, it's, um, um, I think for what, for what Brendan said, you know, would have been, you know, would have been right for him in the circumstances for, for him. Um, generally, generally the answer to that, to that one is no, because it depends on how you leave the club. You know, if, if you looked at, you know, if you looked at the percentage, the percentage of, of managers that, um, that, you know, that leave a club on good terms, then that would be the lower of the percentages. You know, generally it's like any walk of life, you know, wherever you all work. You know, if you are, you know, if you are sacked uh, one day, then that's it. You're gone at the end of the day, sort of never to, never to return. Birmingham came knocking on the door and this is probably one of your more underrated spells as a manager because you were coming into a club fresh off relegation, embarking on his first, you know, Europa League campaign in 50 years, having to get rid of, you know, key players such as Roger Johnson, Scott Dan, Gardiner. How did you go about navigating that season and instilling a new belief? Because you actually went into the playoffs and it was a very, very successful season, even though there was a lot of uncertainty going on behind the scenes. Well, if we, if we, if we talk about it, then, you know, I'd gained 
great experience at, um, at uh, Newcastle. And some of the circumstances were the same. This is a team. The, the, the only difference, which in the end was a benefit, was that the, the team had won the League Cup and obviously beaten Arsenal, Arsenal in, uh, yeah. in the... Yeah. I think Butch is a bit sad about yeah. that. He's a big <laughs> Arsenal fan. <laughs> well, he can't still be sad now, can he? <laughs> <laughs> no, when, you haven't, when you don't win much trophies, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, I understand, Stan. Um, but they certainly won, uh, won, won a good few after that. Um, uh, so my time there was similar would have been similar to Newcastle, where it's a team that had been relegated. We knew we were going to lose players. And, and we, lo we lost, you know, I can remember Scott Dan was one of them. We lost him literally the day before deadline day. So, you know, it, it, was, it was very much similar, those that, um, those that were there. And I think when, when you're in that position, the, the best day at the start of the season is transfer, the end of transfer deadline day. And because at that time, you know who's staying and you, the ones that wanted to go, that, that didn't go, know they have to knuckle down at least in, until, until January. So it was a similar scenario. What we had was something that you could look at, good or bad. But the Europa Cup was, so would that be a plus or would it be a hindrance with the, the amount of games that you played with the squad that we had? Um, it, it, for us, it was a plus because we had... We had Birmingham supporters going abroad, singing songs that some of the Birmingham supporters hadn't heard for years. So, you know, that really galvanated our season and we was able to take that into our, into our league campaign. You've got to have some fortune, you know, when it's that type of season. I think we played something like 62 games that year, something, possibly more. And I can remember in one player, Chris Burke, I think played every game but one you know that season so we, we had to be lucky which we were we had a lot of players that played a, a lot of games um, but it was the Europa Cup campaign that I think really motivated the team and gave us that, that continuity into the, into the league campaign um, it was a big blow when we didn't make it through to the final of the playoffs but, but, a, a, but a really really enjoyable um, year and of course, the, the Europa Travels say gave gave a Birmingham City support, you know, that hadn't done it for years, the opportunity to you, and they travelled in their thousands. Yeah. So talking about the good times, um, I remember last day of the season, you beat Manchester City away from home, and probably looking at it retrospectively, that didn't really do you much favours because there was a big jump up in the league, which probably shall I say, paved over the cracks in terms of going into that next season and the expectations kind of thing. But with regards to you leaving the club, how was Leah? Because we see on the TV, she seems like a bubbly character. How was she in handling your departure of the club? Was it amicable or did you feel a bit let down by the decision that the club made? No, I mean, I think there's, there's two things. I'll go back to um, the last game. We actually, we actually jumped five places yeah. on that last game. We were fortunate. I think we won our last three games of the season, I think. Um, but that last game at Man City, yeah, we, we jumped five places. So, so you were always going to take that. You know, I think as a, as a manager, you know, would you say, well, we might be better off low and that expectations are not going to be as high. You, you, and also, of course, it's Premier League money. 
and you know that that put an additional few million into into the, the club. Um, but I think as regards a, a, a relationship with with Delia, um, sometimes decisions are are made. Um, I had a very, very good relationship with uh, Michael and, and, and Delia. Uh, and I've been back to Norwich on a, on a few occasions and continue to have a good um, relationship with them. You know, probably, you know, if I looked at, if I looked at the situation of, of my departure there, um, I think the club panicked. I think we, we had some tough games in that period of time, even though we were five points above the relegation zone and I think um, the, the, the club panicked at that time and, and of course as, a, as an owner you've got to make these decisions and, and difficult decisions but it certainly wouldn't I don't think would have had anything to do with personality because um, I say we had a very good relationship and what you see of Delia and Michael is, is exactly how they are you know they've been associated with that club and have pumped money into that club for, for an awful long time Yes, Chris, obviously you went to... Do you want to go? No, go on then. Go on then. Yeah, so... Um, well, you got to who's just a better question. Yeah, so obviously you moved to Brighton, which was a different type of task. You know, you, I would say, rebuilt the shape of the club, took them into the Premier League. And what we see of Brighton today is largely owning to, you know, the work that you've done. So talk us through the way you restructured the club, getting promotion and consolidated the club into a Premier League team. Because when you see the owner, Tony Bloom, who obviously earned his corn in the, in the gambling world, he seems to be a, a very sharp thinker, forward thinking and a loyal man. So what's it like working with him? Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll go back to the first, I mean, and of course, in my, my time there, I'd been out of work from my time at, at Norwich. And going back to the, the, the previous question, you know, I had had offers, uh, not so many because of the, the, the timing, but I had had offers to get back into the game, which I chose to take. So I got the job at, um, uh, at uh, Brighton on the 1st of January. So, um, Chris, which clubs were interested in your services um, at the time? Well, you know, that, that, that's something, I, I think, as you already know, <laughs> the three of you already know that I'm not allowed to divulge. Okay. But, but I can tell you that the, there has been interest. And, and remember, you know, when, when I talk about, and every manager will talk the same way, when you know that there has been uh, interest, or, or opportunities, you know that the, nothing, none of that is guaranteed. You know what, 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 ca- what there can be, there can be talk and there can be interest. Um, but until you go somewhere, or, or until you know a, a, an official offer comes from somewhere, then you know that's all it is is interest. So uh, we were uh, when I went to Brighton, the club um, from from having um, been in two playoff positions. Not that season, but the two previous seasons before, you know, I'd known the club. I'd taken a Birmingham team there. I was aware of the stadium, wonderful stadium. I was also aware of the, the facilities that they have, which are, you know, for championship uh, club, exceptional, exceptional facilities. So, uh, so that that I was aware of, um, and of course, the, the, the previous manager had just gone, um, and I think sometimes when. 
when you know that a manager's gone, you are hoping you are going to get a call. And, and that was the case. You know, it was a club that I knew. Um, I say I knew about the facilities. And what I also felt was that this is a club that had been better in two seasons before that. Had gone through a difficult time. A manager changed the structure of the team. And what the team, I felt, needed to do was get back to some basics. And, and that was what we did. We implemented some, some fundamental basics to make sure that we got out of the relegation zone, which, which we did, and to, to be able to grow. And then, of course, what you were relying on is, is good recruitment, good coaching during them, them, that, that summer period and pre-season period, and to start well um, the following season. Um, and, that, and that is what we was able to do. But, but I, had, I had a lot of support uh, from the club, I say recruitment, medical staff, um, sports science um, and of course from above I had good support from the, from the club Chris how was it you know working with Paul Barber because during this pandemic we've seen him a lot you know doing interviews <laughs> with Sky getting his face out there he's one of the chairmen that I hear from the most so how was it working with Paul Barber well I think what you what you'll see with Paul is, is that he speaks very well <laughs> very erudite, yes. <laughs> well, it, it very well, very elegant in, in every, very thoughtful in, in everything that he says, and, and I can can honestly tell you, and you know, pr- probably, probably, if it was different, I probably wouldn't tell you anyway. But um, but it wasn't different. I in four and a half years I was at the club, I had a very very good relationship with uh, um, the CEO, Paul Barber, the chairman, which is which is the owner. Uh, and of course, um, the board. I had a very, very good relationship with them in the four and a half years um, that I was there. So if you're asking me what it was like to work with them, it was um, very uh, professional, um, very um, supportive. Communication was always, was always very good. And, and you know, for, for however many, many potential managers that, that you speak to, particularly Zira, you know, that is an important aspect of management. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the things, you know, if we talk about managers and coaches wanting to coach, wanting to be on a training pitch, then, then relationships, particularly with, the, with your board and board of directors, have become even more important um, over the years and, and, of course, in this modern game. Yeah, I remember at the end of the season, um, you were doing the lap of honour with your grandchild and, you know, next came the announcement that, Chris Hewton had been sacked. And at that moment, hold on, what's going on? This is a man that's brought this team up, consolidated themselves as a regular Premier League team. How did it feel when you got that message? And how was that message relayed to you? Was it a face-to-face chat or was it via text? Uh, Well, you're you're asking for very personal details there. So, no, so probably the, the, what, what I can tell you, what I can tell you is um, that, um, which is what I said, and, and generally um, I haven't said too much because um, I've always preferred not to, and I've always preferred to move on, as I've already um, said to you. But what I have told people, and what I have said, is that I never saw it coming. Because you know, on most occasions, and you, you've already asked me the question um, quite professionally um, about my time at Newcastle 
Um, but I but I can honestly say that um, no, I didn't see it coming. We'd achieved what um, what we wanted to achieve, and I'll go back to what I say about you know clubs like Brighton, a wonderful club. Um, um, if I'm looking at the facilities that they've got in the stadium. Um, but only the second season in, in the Premier League and it's about staying in, in that division so um, no I didn't um, see it coming um, the, the way that it was relayed to me I don't think I've uh, ever said and, and unfortunately unfortunately for you three um, I'm something that I'm still not prepared to share but what I, what I have shared with you is yes, huge, huge disappointment. Yes, um, we're all of making exclusives, you know. For the past three weeks, we've been breaking exclusives, so the floor is yours. Chris, <laughs> give us something, Chris. Give us something that you haven't mentioned before, Chris. <laughs> we love it, Chris. <laughs> well, one, one exclusive is, is that we, we had to have a shortcut in this um, great interview we're doing, because one of you had a problem with your with your microphone. Yeah. So, Chris, since you've been out of work, obviously you've been rumored to be linked with a new a number of jobs, should I say, namely West Ham and Watford. Were you ever approached about you know replacing? Pellegrini or Javi Gracia because there was rumours that were rife that you were you know in the frame for those jobs yeah, yeah. I mean that that I heard and I and I and I understand and and you know there would have been others there would have been others to put to to your list um, but I think as a, as a manager that's 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 out of work you know the the only you know the only uh, reply that I that I would ever give regarding um, you know an approach you know from a team or, or an interview from a team would be if it came from that from that individual team because it's not my my responsibility you know it's it's a responsibility very much of of the team to make that public knowledge and and uh, I have too much respect I've too much respect for for anybody that possibly that I might have been linked with or, or spoken to, to divulge that when when they haven't. But what I can tell you is, is that in the period of time that I have been, I have had offers to to get back into. Is the that game. Premier League or Championship, Chris? Um, I, what, what I can tell you is, is that um, the large majority of that was was um, was Championship. Okay. Um, but that, that's you know that's what I can tell you without uh, naming names, and that's something that um, that I must admit I'm really pleased with because it, it it means that I'm in a position where I have been made offers. Um, I'm also in a position where I've got to feel it was right for me. Some of them some opportunities were quite early. I must admit, I, uh, having having left um, Brighton, and and uh, and I've got to make uh, sure that it's the right. Um, move for me, but but the fact that I I have had offers is something that's been pleasing and very encouraging for me, and and certainly if I look at my appetite into the game, it's as strong now as it was you know the day that I left Brighton. I have one final question, um, Chris, and that is obviously talking about 
um, you know, uh, what lies ahead for you in, in, in future. Now, if we, um, for sake of comparison, take a, a, a player who, who, who's out of contract, they'd obviously be ticken over by, you know, still doing their sort of sessions in the gym, running and whatnot, just to keep themselves sharp. So what does a manager out of a role do to keep the tool sharp? Um, in, in you know whilst whilst he's out of out of work and 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 what have you been doing since um sort of leaving brighton yeah it's a, and it's a good question and probably if i look at this um lockdown that we had um and obviously going on you know i was probably sort of prepped fairly well for this period of time because i've been out of work for for a, a period and i'm somebody that's that um, very much likes to keep busy. And I think that initial period, I think when you, you lose a job at that initial period is a little bit of downtime. And of course, you're getting so many messages. It's about going through your messages, speaking to as many people as you can. Um, but uh, I was exactly the same. I mean, when I um, lost my job at, um, at, at Newcastle, I think within a week I was out watching games. Um, exactly the same at, at Norwich, um, and you know this. Although the timing um, was different, but even in pre-season, I was out watching pre-season games. Of course, with what's happened in football, you know, up until up until um, close to the games finished, I was out watching maybe sort of two, three games a week, which I think continues to give you a knowledge of teams and, and players and playing styles and what have you. Uh, outside, it's about you know, educating yourself, um, reading as much as you can, doing a few webinars. One thing that the, I must admit that the, the LMA have been very good at are a lot of the webinars that they've put, um, they've put together. I've done some uh, of the work uh, for them. So it's, it's about sort of keeping as busy as you can. Now, all of that can't be around football because, because it can only take up so much of the time. Um, but just keeping yourself fit, going to the gym every morning, reading, reading um, uh, football books and also non-football books, keeping your mind active. But I think when you're somebody that's always been as busy as, as what I am, and I think what most managers are, it's very, very hard then to switch off from it. So, you know, I, I've enjoyed this, um, I must admit, with you three uh, lads. And this is very much sort of part and parcel also of me talking about football, being involved in football, seeing what's going on um, and, um, I, and keeping myself as busy as possible. Chris, it's been an absolute um, pleasure to have you on to the on, on the podcast and we appreciate all your support and we hope to see you back in management at the top level very very soon which is what you deserve <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it we're obviously going through um, very uh, difficult times um, with the, the pandemic and, and of course everything that's gone on with the, the racial issues over, over the last um, uh, week or so so, um, yes, we, we, we need to, to get through that to make the improvements that, 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 that we can uh, and continue continue that thirst for knowledge. And that's what I think we're all doing. You three want to be the best uh, you can at, w- at what you're doing. And exactly the same with myself. You know, it, I've been 
coaching managing for for that long but you know the game is changing exactly the same way as your game is changing and the only way to keep on top of that is to continue to continue to educate yourself um but i wish the three of you all the the very best for endeavors and um and hopefully i'll speak to you again soon thank you chris absolutely thanks so much chris thanks Great stuff. It wouldn't be a, a, a beautiful game podcast without a shameless plug right at the end. So before you sign out, I'm just going to remind all of you guys, if you're not yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, it's the Beautiful Game Podcast. And you can also follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore TBG and on Instagram at pod underscore TBG. And you can listen to all of our episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts as well. And if you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, please make sure you leave a five-star review we're going to leave it there until the next episode. Adova and out. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash Internet for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.